Hello folks and welcome to Switch It, where we're asking, what are nude nuts anyway? One test into the men's ashes and it already seems the oldest rivalry has found a new gear. It's all going off everywhere at once, but while Australia are 1-0 up in the series, England felt like they won at Edgbaston, which I think we'd agree is almost as good. The players have had a few days off while the women's ashes got underway at Trent Bridge, not that that stopped the talking during the downtime, and the B word has barely been out of the headlines. The Americans were in town over the weekend and it seems they've named an entire sport in its honour. Anyway, to get stuck in once again as we build up to the Lord's Test, I'm joined by Andrew Miller, ESPN Quick Info UK editor and the official gatekeeper of Basball, as well as assistant editor Matt Roller, who has dialed in from HQ. Um, Miller, uh, good to see you up and about um, following the unfortunate backknack that struck you uh, during your last appearance on the pod. Yes, indeed. Sitting down on the sofa at the pod uh, finally killed my back for good. Um, so, yeah, I'm off to get it carved open on Wednesday, but uh, hopefully that won't be too onerous. I'll be back baz brawling before you know it. And um, so, yeah, it'll be a nice, nice, uh, nice distraction to uh, yeah, sit, in, sit in the hospital and, and watch England beat it up at, at Lords uh, over the next five days. General anaesthetic might be the best way to avoid some of the the chat that's been going around. Uh, but this is a I mean, it's proper fast bowler's injury you've got here. Are you, are you hoping for a you know an Angus Fraser like return? Well, absolutely, it's very Angus Fraser esque in, <laughs> in every every respect. My hip initially was was the, was the issue, and now it's my entire back. But yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, get the uh, uh, the the full works and come back with a spring loaded lower body and uh, and torpedo things. It's going to be yeah. Bring it on! I'm I, I'm just just beginning my my career at the age of forty five. I'm I'm back for good. <laughs> well, back back stress injuries are very much uh, in vogue for um, England adjacent uh, sports people. Let's say, um, Matt, you're you're down there at Lords. What was the vibe like today? Any any sense that the sense that the niggle is building around the series? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting day, I suppose. I think um, there's obviously a slightly odd vibe to this test match, and, and I think we'll obviously come in, come on to this during the course of the pod. But um, with the the impending publication of the ICEC report, which uh, appears to be uh, pretty damning about the state of English cricket, it feels like. It, there's one sense in which English cricket has a great opportunity this summer because of the fact that this Ashes series takes place entirely during the gap between um, the, the you know the end of the last football season and the start of the next one. But then again, it, it feels like that the spotlight will well and truly be on, on on the day before the Lord's Test, not least because of the fact that the, the uh, Commission have really stuck the boot into uh, MCC, the, the private members club that obviously own this ground. So it's uh, that's sort of been the shadow hanging overlords I suppose um two days out from the game and I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to throughout the course of this test match where um you know particularly with a a not particularly diverse England team by the standards of some uh it feels as though this is going to be a talking point throughout the the next week or so but um yeah in terms of the sort of uh all the all the trash talk that's been going on in the press over the past I suppose a week or so since the end of the Edgebaston test. Um, I don't think it's necessarily been ramped up uh, today. I think most of that talking has probably been done. Um, is the impression I get. I think uh, most of the play- most of the England players, particularly Ollie Pope, when he came and spoke to the press today, was uh, perfectly happy to uh, to roll his eyes and sort of say that's just just Ollie Robinson for you. Um, but yeah, I, I feel as though. Um, that, that that sort of side of it seems to have moved slightly away from the players, since, at least since uh, Robinson's fairly uh, explosive column for uh, Wisden uh, in the gap between tests and sort of seems to have moved towards just a series of ex-Australian players lining up to fire some shots at uh, a guy that they don't seem to rate much as a bowler, despite the fact he takes his wickets at 21 in test cricket. Uh, yes, well, we perhaps go straight in there. Lords, yeah, certainly the place to be, and we will be. Uh, we will be talking about the uh, Independent Commission for Equity and Cricket report a bit later on. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll stick with um, Ollie Robert and the nude nuts. That was uh, that was Matt Hayden's um, description for his uh, 120 uh, kph bowling, um, which is probably worth pointing out took five wickets at 19.6 Edgbaston, which was better than any any bowler on either side um, and also a better economy, I think, than any, any other uh, bowler in that test. Um, 
Miller, I mean, uh, the, 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 the phony war, um, is, is part of, uh, you know, every Ashes series. Robinson pretty much, um, you know, fired the first shots back in April, I think it was, um, maybe even have been March when, when he talked about giving Australia a good hiding. Um, he then had a little, uh, flare up with Usman Kawaja at Edgbaston. It, it then, developed into a bit of a pylon with um, Ricky Ponting who whose name was taken in vain by Ollie Robinson at the, pre- at the press conference post-match um, hitting back uh, Matt Hayden having his say I think Michael Clark's been the latest um, from the Australia camp Travis Head was was asked about it I think over the weekend because um, Head's played with Robinson uh, for Sussex and, and and he um, gave it a you know a fairly sort of light-hearted response but um I mean, what what do you sense this says about either side? I suppose, um, and uh, I know whether England are wise to get into a sort of um, you know war of words about their style of play and so on um, so early in the series. Yeah, well, I, I wrote a big piece about about the baseball the other day for, for for the site because I you know obviously I'm, I'm I'm a believer that it's the right way for England to go. But the one thing I did think that England needed to dial back was this. Endless evangelising about how how they're doing it for the for the fans, how they're doing it for the entertainment, how they're doing it for for you know the betterment of the sport. You know, I, all of that, as far as I'm concerned, should be side products. Yeah, you know, all of the, there there is a degree of truth in all of this. I do believe that uh, that the the entertainment aspect is important. I do believe that uh, making players want to play Test cricket is very important. You know, so so. Um, you know, Moeen Ali's test return, you know, that would not have happened if it wasn't for Basball. There's no way that Moeen Ali would have bothered to play test cricket again. And he could be the first of several players who who might think, you know what, there, there's more fun to this game than I previously thought. So for all those reasons and more, not to mention the fact that England win more than they lose with Basball, I still believe it's the right way to go. But but yeah, the the, the endless endless evangelising is just a little bit daft. And But equally, England... Ollie Robinson in particular just does not care. Uh, you know, as far as I was concerned, right back at the start of all this, when he was first firing shots in April and Stuart Broad, obviously England's chief antagonist, uh, or certainly well, used to be, he's now, now not, not villain number one, according to Fox, Fox Cricket, which uh, he was very affronted by. But way back then, it kind of felt like this was all kind of part of the point of the, the ramping up of, of the Ashes, in that the last Ashes was so terrible and so boring and so one-sided that it was actually on the players a little bit to to dial into the hype and and get 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 the buzz going again because they they'd blown it last time round actually you know they, they they it was on them to 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 big up the the nonsense that goes into the ashes and then go out and produce on the on the field but right now it, it almost feels like that robbins has just gone into overdrive he's completely gone loco it's it's hilarious so it, it partly partly it's almost like a uh, it's almost a very basball origin story type type thing as far as I'm concerned. I mean, my, I wrote again that, that Basball kind of originally stemmed from Brendan McCullum, you know, in, in in a dark, dark time post Philip Hughes and all the rest of it, deciding that, you know, what the best way to play cricket is to not care, not think, and just go out and hit it. And Spen Stokes, likewise, after coming out of a really, really tough couple of years with COVID and the death of his dad, all the rest of it, comes out to a team that's been beaten and thinks, I don't care anymore. Let's just, let's just smack it and see what happens. And Ollie Robinson, likewise, He's a guy, obviously, two years ago, was dragged through the mud in a, in a way that very, very few people will ever endure with with the, with the pile on that followed the um, uh, those publication of the historic tweets, of course. And so here's a guy who, you know, he thought he wasn't going to play for England again when that happened. He he probably um, he clearly deeply regretted what he wrote when he was a teenager, uh, but he clearly reckons that you know. Whatever gets thrown at me now, when I just gob off about England's prospects in, a, in an Ashes series, it's absolutely nothing compared to the stuff that I've endured having having been through all that. And so, you know, he's bulletproof in the same way that, that McCullum and Stokes seem to be bulletproof from from their their own dark experiences leading into the series. Um, you know, obviously there's still plenty of time for him to get tonked out the tonked out the attack, and and you know, Aussies will say you, you really do bold nude nuts, but you know, he got. Was it five for ninety-eight in forty odd overs in that first test, average of nineteen? I mean, there's not an awful lot that he did wrong uh, from a from a from a professional bowling level in that test, other than not take the last two wickets. So uh, he's you know all the, all the talk that he's not a very good bowler. It, it does actually miss the point that he's actually quite a good bowler. He's just not a very quick bowler, which is uh, I suppose 
the, the one thing that um, probably gets on Australia's goes even more the, the fact they are being out, uh, undone to a degree by by nude nuts. <laughs> well, he's a bowler who uh, you know I think has spoken a fair bit about how kind of uh, you know Glenn McGrath and that that style of um, metronomic accuracy, accuracy is is his thing. Um, I presume they are still quite respectful about um, Pidge's attributes uh, as a as a Test match bowler. Um, Matt, you mentioned his column, Ollie Robinson's column. This is um, he, I think, described uh, the game as England playing all the cricket, basically. Um, and it was uh, again in in his column where the the comment from McCullum that it feels like we've won, uh, lads. Uh, came from I think um, although uh, James Anderson has also written a column Stuart Broad has a column I mean it, it, we're, we're in a, almost a kind of um, a unprecedented overload of, of uh, channels for, for all this stuff to be vented on there's the tail end there's podcast there's Instagram there's Times Radio, bizarrely, where Zach Crawley went to to tell people that England are going to win by 150 runs at Lords, uh, um, no less, putting a putting a number on it. Um, I mean, do you just get the sense that you know, if, uh, England fans might just be saying, "Let's let's stop all this, guys, and win a test." Yeah, I mean, I think particularly when you consider that um, <laughs> columns that players write for media outlets generally are sort of um, approved by the ECB. I'd, I would love to see that the the original unfiltered version of what Robinson came up with. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it, it does feel a little bit like England have got carried away between the tests, particularly with some of this media stuff. But then again, um, you know, some of these are delivered in a slightly different context to what they look like when you sort of pull the words out and um, strip them back. You know, I think Crawley, much as it was a probably a very poorly advised comment to predict um, an exact margin of victory uh, at Lords when one nil down in the National Series, I think it was meant mainly as a throwaway. Um, but I, I do think there's a, a fair point in that, um, you know, as Miller alludes to, I don't think um, Australia will particularly change their style, if at all, over the course of this game. I think they might. You know, we obviously saw Cummins play a few shots that probably changed the course of the game. And I wouldn't be surprised if they continue to um, occasionally counterattack or counterpunch at a time which suits them with the bat. But I, I don't feel as though Australia will be looking at winning the first Ashes test, um, chasing a, a pretty competitive total in the last innings um, and extending a pretty strong run of success in test cricket over the last two years. I don't think they'll be looking at that as some kind of wake-up call. I think they'll look at that just in the same way that England have seen a, a competitive game as vindicating their tactics and their method. I think Australia will think much the same and, and I think that's the the part that will probably jar with a few, uh, both England fans and Australians, is, is the idea that sort of England by scoring quite quickly and, and uh, you know, taking the game close have somehow proved a point or proved something about a style because, I mean, personally, and I think this is true across sports, I've always thought that, um, you know, sport is at its most compelling when you have two clearly defined styles. And I think that was what was so uh, gripping about that, that test, that edge bust. And I, I think, you know, we see it in football, for example, back in the, the, the that great stage of sort of uh, Mourinho versus Guardiola rivalry or um, in tennis, when you have the, the contrast in styles between a, uh, a Federer and a Djokovic between sort of um, the, the, you know, the, the sense of aesthetic beauty and perfection and attempt to achieve some kind of, uh, yeah, some kind of uh, higher status as a team versus sheer pragmatism. Uh, and I think we're sort of seeing that play out to an extent uh, across this series. And I think that that is going to be the thing that makes it particularly gripping. I don't, I don't think we're going to see, um, you know, Steve Smith come out and try and whack his third ball out the ground for six um, simply because of the fact that England scored at four and a bit and over across the first test. Um, I, I think we're going to keep seeing that contrast of stars. And I think that has been the sort of interesting part for me of the, the, the narrative between the two tests is Australia sort of seem pretty nonplussed, the team themselves, that is, rather than the sort of ex-players shouting in the media uh, about England style and about their sort of proclamations, whereas England sort of seem increasingly, um, you know, Evangelized, I think they were likened to a cult at one point over the weekend. Um, and it, it, it will be fascinating to see how this week plays out because 
you know, everyone has said all along that this Ashes series was going to be the acid test for, for Basball. And much as I, 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 you know, it's clearly just based on results so far been so much better than what came before it, that it's sort of already a success. But there will definitely be, um, you know, some uh, some interesting reactions, shall we say, if England go down swinging uh, and go 2-0 down uh, at this stage in the series. Because much as this is a, a slightly different uh, test series in sort of style and vibe to many we've seen before, I think history will tell you that it's very hard to come back from 2-0 down after two tests in, in any series, let alone one like this. Yeah, I think that's uh, only been done in, in the ashes by uh, Don Bradman's team, which uh, tells you kind of the territory you're in. Um, I think I think what you're saying, Matt, is that Australia have come in to park the bus um, and it's anti-football uh, all the way for the for the rest of the series. Um, yeah, uh, on on the subject of of what Basball is or isn't, it, uh, and Miller has has um, put up some of the defence there. I mean, it's been described as a, as a death cult, uh, a smokescreen, an accident waiting to happen. Um, Miller, as you put it uh, in your piece, which uh, very readable, um, it, it's proven the single best means for this particular group of players to achieve their potential. Um, Interestingly, Martin Slabashane was asked uh, about it, I think, um, over, over the weekend. Australia resumed their sort of training and preparations uh, a little bit before England, having had a couple of days off after Edgbaston. Um, and Labashain used the example of, of Joe Root and, and his 40, uh, 46, I think it was, in the second innings at Edgbaston. Obviously, he made an unbeaten 100 as well. But... Um, uh, Labashain said that you know basically him playing that way, that method, and those shots are keeping us in the game. Uh, which uh, it, I mean, we've kind of touched on it that Australia are happy with the way they play and and, and won't be budging. Uh, Labashain and, and Steve Smith are very much the kind of players that are going to be wedded to their approach uh, and um, you know happy to accumulate for um, you know as long as as long as they're given the opportunity to do so. Um, but it, are England, you know, have England um, guilty of, of overreach uh, in their style, or is it is that just you know part of the, the part of the collateral with Basball is that you you push as far as you can, and, and in some cases that involves you know pushing yourself off the edge of a cliff. I, I, honestly, I think that is the case. I mean, to, to drill down into what what Labuschagne is saying there about Root. Now, I, again, I touched on this in the piece. I was kind of re- referring to Root's first first shot on that fourth day against Pat Cummins and his reverse ramp for six, or the attempted reverse ramp. He pulled off a six later on, but nonetheless, he went for the shot, first ball of the day, and it looked absolutely barking. If you weren't thinking in the context of how he was thinking, now. I wrote about you know Shane Warne's theory of uh, of poker image, and essentially you're trying to play the man, not the cards. Because if you play the cards, the cards can go badly for you. If you play the man, you can beat the man in the head before the cards even hit the table. And looking on the other side, what could he have done that morning if he wasn't playing baseball, and he was thinking, right, I just need to be really careful here. I don't want to give my wicket away. I need to just play myself in. Plays a nice straight batted shot to a ball. Perfectly pitched, on off stump, nipping away, takes the edge. He's gone first ball for a duck. It could have happened. It could have happened. Pat Cummins bowled a good length ball outside off stump that was designed to lure a tentative batsman into nibbling doomfully. Instead, Roots sees it coming and thinks, you know what, he's going to bowl in the channel outside off. I'm going to try and hit him over, hit him over six over final, over third man. I mean, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant if you take, take it in the context that it is, it is designed. And so... You can you can argue that yeah he gave it away for forty six when he could have gone on to eighty but he could have been got out for naught or whatever he was overnight and not even got to forty six so you know this is this is the the the, the daft thinking that England have gone into um, under Basball is a direct consequence of the hopeless thinking they went into when they were facing uh, say you know bloody Melbourne you know seven seven for six and uh, Scotty Boland <laughs> seven for six or whatever he what it was he took. Every single time. Correct, he was yeah, in the channel. In the channel, outside off, nicking off because he was bowling perfect length and England didn't have a way to combat it. They've decided to combat it by thinking, you know what, we're, gonna let you, we're not going to let you settle. And now, now Scotty Boland, of all the bowlers, his place is under pressure because he went at sixes in that test match. So that's one rejoinder to the argument. I do think 
yes, of course, you can look at the end result and think, yeah, they probably should have reined it in. I think I think our old chum George was saying, if, if they just use a bit of brain in basketball, they might be able to play it better. I said, oh, come on, George, honestly. I mean, you, you, you don't get to be play half measures with basketball. It's it's all in, all, all out. So it's that, that that's kind of it's kind of written written into the into the job description. And on that note, I also happen to agree it is a bit of a cult. And I also happen to believe that basketball will end in some sort of Waco-type siege, in a complete meltdown of, of all functionality, and they'll basically have to prise them out of the building before they set fire to it. But that, I'm afraid, if you start worrying about the end game with great regimes, you, you miss the fun to be had along the way. I mean, look, look, look along, along the way with England. We've had, what, three... Three and a half really good regimes that England have had in, in recent times. We had um, uh, Duncan Fletcher in 2005. Obviously, 2005 was the apogee. It ended in absolute disaster. 5-0 whitewash, absolute drubbing at the World Cup. He leaves in high dudgeon, calls everyone a bunch of bastards as he walks out the door and never speaks to the English media again. That ended in an absolute calamity. Andy Flower gets England to number one in the world. He, he produces a, a, a cold-blooded killing machine of an England team that ends up being such a cold-blooded killing machine that the, the, the fans are turned off by England being so good, and then they start being really rubbish, and that ends in an absolute bin fire as well. And so if you think that McCullum is going to end in a bin fire, you're probably right. But you've got to appreciate the fact that this journey is probably going to be worth the bin fire at the end of it. As I certainly think it is. Are you not entertained? I think it is is being the sort of the sum, the underlying point that has been made all throughout this basketball era. And I'm certainly entertained. And I think pretty much everyone who's who has tuned in at any stage of basketball has been entertained, and will probably be entertained by the way it all, all unfolds. But hopefully, from an England perspective, that's not this summer. Hopefully, it's deferred at least until this winter, or maybe even next summer, or winter after that, if England have a good time in India and uh, and beyond. There's, 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 always, there's always another another day that, that it can go wrong, but it doesn't have to be today. <laughs> I'm trying to picture just how much fun the Branch Davidians were having and what sort of uh, free-flowing <laughs> batsmanship David Koresh preached in order to get everyone uh, to Waco uh, back, in, <laughs> back in the 1990s. Um, yeah, I mean, and uh, there's probably an opportunity here if they do burn down uh, Lords uh, one stage or another, because then, as we will get on to, uh, the game can be rebuilt in a, in a better image. Um, for now, we, we've we've got a, a, a an Ashes series to play out uh, and four more tests, Matt. And um, away from the sort of theoretical and the apocalyptic, um, there are. Uh, the usual sort of selection issues and um, um, one or two um, uh, questions that England were grappling with in the sort of uh, in the aftermath of the defeat and when it was all quite raw. Um, and I'm talking about Moen's finger, obviously Moen Ali's uh, red raw uh, spinning finger. He is um, he's with the squad. Uh, I, I think Brendan McCullum, uh, um, you, you were possibly there for for sort of the post match, and um, Brendan McCullum said it's you know actually he'll play if he's fit. Um, and, you know we're all kind of like well you know he he could barely bowl or barely grip the ball on the final day um, when England needed a spinner, but. Um, He's in contention. England have called up Rayan Ahmed though, as well, which is which is another sort of, um, you know, uh, square-shouldered, basballing type move. This is an eighteen-year-old with twenty-two first-class wickets um, and six at sixty-seven this season for for Leicestershire uh, in Division Two of the County Championship. Um, and, and it's probably worth saying that uh, uh, Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes probably don't look too much at the county championship averages before they make their their calls on these things. But I mean, uh, he was presumably he was there today bowling in the nets um, as he was doing five six years ago as a as a as a thirteen year old um, that caught Shay Morn's eye and and that that clip has been over social media again in the last week. Do you get the sense that um, he could? Uh, come into contention. He, he has obviously made a test debut, but uh, and, and performed very creditably in Karachi in Pakistan over the winter. Um, but he would be the first um, man, male, to play eighteen-year-old to play um, Ashes cricket, I think, in history. Um, and uh, and there's, I mean, with what with everything going around this series, that's a, another big thing to uh, to roll the dice on. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the word from the England camp is that he's very much here as cover. Um, that said, he was very much in the UAE as cover 
directly before making his test debut against Pakistan. So, um, I, I, you know, it, it would be foolish knowing this regime to completely rule out the chance of a debut. Um, I, I think the, the word around Moen's finger today, two days out from the game, has been pretty positive. I think he's clearly um, benefited from from a long break um, between tests and. Uh, supposedly, at least, it, it's healed up. I suppose the question is um, how many overs it might take in a game situation for hit for it to, um, particularly with the amount of you know he's clearly going to try and attack and try and spin the ball hard. Um, so it's clearly going to be a, a situation where um, they're going to if he does play, they're going to have to hope that um, it doesn't reopen and that he doesn't have the same issue, which feels like a, a distinct possibility, to be honest. Um, I'm sort of aware that given England's predilection to name teams quite a long way in advance that anything I say here could age like yellow label milk but um, I think my my assumption at least is that Moeen might well play um, and that if he does I think Stokes will probably be slightly more careful in terms of the management of him and probably because of how well Root bowled uh, on the final day Edgebaston at least managing to hold an end up for the vast majority of that spell um, I wouldn't be surprised if Moeen had a slightly lighter workload and Stokes was maybe slightly more willing to um, to throw root the ball. Um, but the seam attack is a, a real unknown, really. I mean, Anderson obviously underwhelmed in, in the first test in, in his first game for five weeks or so um, and sort of spoke before bowling on the final day, actually, about the fact he, he did feel a bit stiff and um, sort of hoped he would be better for the run, but was clearly short on cricket. Um and I think it, that that sort of presents a difficult challenge of, particularly with a little bit of green on the pitch that I can see outside of the window, uh, as I as I speak, uh, it feels it feels like a situation where Anderson would be pretty disappointed to have uh, done the hard yards at Edgebaston and then be left out on a um, pitch that might offer him a bit more, especially when his body might be a, a bit uh, in a slightly better place to um, get through a five day game, but. I suppose the big question for England is whether they're going to turn to Mark Wood, um, who clearly offers something different to the rest of the attack. Um, and Lords, as a pitch, has quite often been, I suppose, relatively um, relatively difficult for um, for fast bowlers, but has also led England to, uh, as we saw during that test against Ireland just a few weeks ago, led England to, to do funky stuff, to have sustained short ball spells, um, which we saw from Josh Tung in that test. Um, and as a result, it wouldn't be too much of a surprise if Wood plays. That would then leave a difficult question as to who they who they left out. So kind of all up for grabs from that point of view. Um, and from the Australian point of view, I think the, um, the only real question is what what's going to happen with the the balance of the seam attack. Um, clearly, Josh Hazelwood having come back from injury is going to be a, a question mark because he's... It's been a long time, I think a couple of years actually, since he's managed to play back-to-back test matches and his his body will be something that they're monitoring closely through the series. Uh, Mitchell Stark did media today, which would sort of hint at maybe the fact he might play, but um, he was very much uh, still on the fence and suggested that he was unclear as to whether he was in the team at this stage. Um, he's obviously uh, done pretty well here historically in, in one-day cricket, where he took, I think, a four for and a five for during the 2019 World Cup, but... Um, has only played one test here back in 2015. Um, and, and then obviously England went after and fetched pretty successfully Scott Boland at Edgebaston. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's a, an intriguing question for Australia, which balance they go with, because I think there's a, a case for each of um, those, for, for any of those three to play. Um, but I, I suppose we shall, we shall find out pretty soon. And um, I don't expect any major overhauls in terms of the uh, the sort of balances of the side or anything like that, um, obviously there was some discussion about Johnny Best those keeping in the uh, during the Edge Baston Test. But as far as I see, I would be stunned if Ben Folks plays in the series, barring an injury to one of the top seven batters. Yeah, it's. Um, I think the the England um, sort of bowling question is is the one that uh, will exercise people most, unless England name the team sort of tomorrow morning, but. Um, uh, Miller, uh, James Addison uh, was pretty candid in his newspaper column 
um, between uh, between these games. Uh, it described that edge piston surface as like kryptonite, uh, not much swing, no reverse swing, no seam movement, no bounce, no pace, uh, not a lot of much. And I felt like it was fighting an uphill battle. It's a long series and hopefully I can contribute sometime at some point. But if all the pitches are like that, I'm done in the Ashes um, series. This Ashes series, presumably that means. But um, I mean, <laughs> is, there a, is there a slight worry that with Anderson... Uh, it could all come to an abrupt end at some point. We've, we've, you know, we've become so used to him uh, being sort of old father time, going on forever into his forties. But he did not look very happy, uh, which perhaps isn't unusual for for James Anderson uh, whilst playing cricket. But uh, yeah, th- those those are quite that's quite an honest assessment from him. Yeah, he was he was sort of sounding like the grown up in the room when it came to all of very, England's various media commitments. Uh, you know, the 150 run win here and uh, Ollie Robinson going loco there, and then James Anderson with with some fairly sanguine comments by the by the by the wider standard of of England's um, slightly culty response to defeat. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a I mean, we we discuss this so often, haven't we? I mean, I, I was I was rummaging through the archives uh, as you do when you're writing feature about. England's existential woes uh, and I remember coming across I think it was 2016 a piece saying have we just seen the last um, last match that Anderson will play um, you know <laughs> there was a very very good reason to think that it was as well I can't I can't remember off the top of my head what what it was it was uh, you know there was some niggle that he had that it was a you know that it, 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 at the age of whatever he would have been, thirty six or no, thirty four, perhaps by then. Before they went to India and he was injured again and uh... Yes indeed, that's right. Yeah, he had, <laughs> had a broken shoulder, didn't he? And that even that yeah. wouldn't stop him going off to India. So, you know, there's all <laughs> sorts of things that, that Anderson has, has has surmounted and his sheer beneath his his grumpy exterior there is a love of the game and a love of the art that sustains him and makes him want to carry on. So it's impossible to second guess his 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 um his thought processes but yeah there's definitely a concern not least i suppose because england ideally would like to be able to pick 13 players i think they they don't really want to disrupt their balance of the attack they've got but they would quite like to be able to play mark wood i'm sure uh, but playing mark wood with stokes still not entirely fit and with moeen clearly a doubt about how how durable his spinning can be you'd end up with with three bowlers who are basically bowling half a load or certainly, you know, with respect to what the, the, the type of work you want Wood to do, you wouldn't want him doing the sort of donkey work that, that you might get out of a, a more conventional seamer. Uh, so it's a really tough balance for England to strike. But we saw in that Ireland game, didn't we, that um, that, that final day when Ireland just got out of got out of an innings defeat and lost by 10 wickets instead. And there, there was a period, long periods, when, when they looked just perfectly comfortable you know they were never going to they were never going to turn the game on its head but they were perfectly comfortable against an England attack that couldn't create an opening and you know in fact you know we saw again with the way that England bowled when Anson wasn't chosen for the new ball on the final at Edgebast and the, the bowler they really wanted on that day was probably, some, probably someone like Neil Wagner the guy who had uh, who'd bombed England out for their one run defeat using similar tactics hit the deck hard induce a mistake but the trouble is Wagner that that's his modus operandi he 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 does that and he is he's created a formidable career by being this git who just you can't get away from banging it in halfway down the track it's it's not the best approach for an England attack but clearly I mean he's not unskillful but differently skilled I suppose is what you're, what you're trying to say there so it's it's a difficult one Anderson was neutered by the by the by the conditions at the age of 40 um, that's got to be a worry. Um, I, 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 I'm not writing Muffy yet. I put it that way. Yeah, and uh, well, as as Matt sort of uh, mentioned, the idea that he uh, was lacking a bit of match fitness and rhythm, he would presumably like to sort of continue in harness. Um, uh, difficult to leave out Stuart Broad when he's just taken six wickets, including uh, Marnus Labuschagne twice in five balls um and steam smith as well um and Ollie I mean, robinson has to play <laughs> there's no way you no way don't play him now. <laughs> yes yes that would be sort of pulling your punches um to, to uh to change your selection there uh, on, on i mean on the surface um matt the, there's only been one total above 400 at lords uh in the last five years and that was england's 524 for four against ireland when um I think it's fair to say the, the bowling wasn't at the, at the highest of standard. Um, 
if if it is, I mean, I mean, there have been some shootouts at Lords in, in recent years. The New Zealand Test last year was pretty low scoring. Uh, that doesn't necessarily play into England's uh, hands, though, albeit that their record against Australia at home in the last sort of 10, 15 years has, has tended to be um, uh, bolstered by winning in sort of seeming conditions. Um, doing it against this Australia track is, is, a, is another risk. Yeah, definitely. I, I think um, it, it was interesting to see some some comments from the MCC over the weekend saying that they're sort of hoping to have a bit more pace in the pitch. I mean, the Lords sort of whole whole square is, and pitch block has seemed quite dead over a period of time. And I think they did quite extensive work over the winter to try and add a bit of life to it. But I mean, that pitch against Ireland was, I, I don't think it was particularly fast. I didn't feel it was, a, if, if anything, I thought it was a bit too paced. There's a bit of variable bounce as soon as the third day. So I, I don't think it's going to be a sort of, I don't think it's going to be a pitch like, for example, the, the one we saw at the Gabba in the first test of um, the last Ashes series where it was, you know, grassy and also relatively quick. Um, it, but yeah, it, it's quite often a, a real mixed bag here at Lords. I mean, if you think back, a good example would probably be the 2019 World Cup final, which obviously you know it was, it ended up being vindicated by the by the ending. But for a lot of that game, it was a pretty tiresome sort of old school one day international. Uh, even sort of hundred finals day last year was on a real uh, you know low scoring shootout. So it wouldn't surprise me if it's um, a sort of relatively old school English pitch almost, um, particularly with a bit of grass on the top. But yeah, it is definitely an interesting one. I think um, the other thing that probably, you know, we obviously, there's always a lot of talk about the slope at Lords, which is kind of a, um, you know, a, a great intangible, which, you know, sometimes seems to play into the bowler's favour, sometimes the batters and uh, kind of can be applied to any single delivery during the course of a test match. But I think the one thing that quite often goes sort of less talked about is the fact that it does have a relatively unusual set of dimensions for an English ground and that it has quite long straight boundaries and quite short square boundaries. Um, so I, I wonder if England are sort of lining them up and thinking and sort of planning accordingly because they obviously were quite keen to go, you know, Australia as well were quite keen to go over the top in the first game and down the ground against the spinners. Um, and, and suddenly that's a slightly harder challenge when it's a long straight boundary and there might be a few more people thinking about playing across the line and uh, trying to target the, the shorter sides. But um, yeah, yeah. It's always a bit of a lottery, particularly two days out. I've not seen the pitch up close. I'm just looking at it from hundred odd yards away. But um, yeah, there's not there's not been any sort of definitive takes on it as yet. But yeah, very interested to see what gets served up because it does seem to be a, a bit of a bit of a random one here. And of course, it was uh, the venue for England's only defeat last summer as well. Uh, there, there are yeah. any um, uh, non-self-inflicted defeat, I'm going to say, where uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, the only they, defeat where they didn't declare their first innings. Yeah, exactly. Not brought about by by yeah. uh, trying to take the game on and uh, um, do all the running. Um, I mean, either way, Miller, the, you know, the, the, the touch paper has been lit. Uh, Edgbaston was the most watched test that Sky have ever had. Um, as you say, we are we are entertained and, and we will be uh, tuning in accordingly. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I refer back to what I, what I said in my, in my predictions when, when we were all trying to, trying to go for what our predictions would be. I, I said it'd be 3-2 to England because no one knows what's going to happen. But I said also in that they're going to cock up one test that they're probably going to win, so tick. They're probably going to get rolled over in a test where Australia's seamers run amok, which, you know, if we if they, if Australia's quicks at, at, at Lords last time around is any example, that's not impossible to be here. But then they'll basball it to great effect in three games and win 3-2. I mean, ideally from an England perspective, they need to win this one. But even if they don't, I still believe, they're going to believe, that they can win the series from 2-0 down. They, they have got such preposterous self-confidence uh, and it seems completely unprickable um, even though you know the, the the events of that last day at Edgebaston and the and the follow-ups and the you know the the schadenfreude flying back and cross back, back and forward around the globe is it's the sort of stuff that the lesser England teams would have shied from by now they, 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 they'd be bricking it but no they've doubled down and uh, I, I'm in awe of that um, or of that mindset, put it that way. I always thought that the basketball mindset was 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 quite something, but the just the the ability they seem to have just to 
cut out the noise and create the noise for themselves and is 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 second to none. So all we can do is strap in, as Joe Root said, and, and wait wait for round two because it, it, it's going to be compelling. Whatever comes whatever comes our way. There we go. The uh, the Godfather of Basball speaks. Uh, the the women's Ashes is also up and running with Australia completing an eighty nine run win at Trent Bridge this morning. Um, we'll have some dedicated chat from Valkyrie and Ferdos on ladies who switch. But Miller, worth noting some impressive performances in particular from Tammy Beaumont, Sophie Eccleston, and Ashley Gardner. Absolutely. Some monumental performances. It's a five-day Ashes test, which is something that the England women, Heather Knight in particular, has been very vocal about. And it was utterly vindicated, frankly. It was a really, really compelling game. It could have gone either way for the entire duration. And, you know, that was after it was set up with a with a 4-7-3 plays 4-6-3 pair of first innings that, had it been a four-day test, would have been a nailed-on draw. We'd have thought, God, this is this is too bloody boring. Let's just switch off. With, why why are we even here? But actually, just that that extra day just meant that everything that went on, everything that went into building that situation over the first two innings was mesmerising, to be perfectly honest. And it was it was done with some outstanding batting. Uh, Tammy Beaumont, as, as you mentioned, that two hundred eight, the highest score by an England woman. Uh, Sophie Eccleston five for in each innings. Uh, but Ash Gardner gets uh, goes and trumps it with twelve in the match and an eight for. Uh, with some outstanding attacking offspin uh, and capitalising on on England, who just just dropped their bundle at the at the wrong moments, uh, uh, they they will they will be really frustrated because you know the, the 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 dynamics of of having to win back the Ashes as opposed to retain them mean that if there aren't any washouts, they're going to have to win five out of six uh, to uh, to claim the Ashes. So it's basically gone on, on the strength of one test, which is going to be gutting for them. But at least it went on the strength of a test that is going to be, uh, it will be remembered because it, there were historic performances and good crowds. And uh, it was it was properly competitive uh, all the way through and a credit, uh, credit to the game. And, you know, I think it, it goes to show that uh, more women's tests is a good idea because it was certainly worth tuning in for for those five days. Away from the hullabaloo over the ashes, there is an even weightier issue at hand with the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket report, uh, which has been released, um, comes out on Tuesday. And the ECB has been braced for this for some time, Miller, but it promises to be a, a significant moment in the wider discussion about diversity and accessibility within the game. Yeah, it really does. I mean, you know, this this has been this has been alluded to in in pretty much every briefing that's gone on about uh, about, about equity for the past two years. We, England have known that there's been this monster brewing, and we've we've basically known the 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 basic contents of it for a long time now. We 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 expected England to be castigated, English cricket to be castigated on the grounds of race, but also gender and class, which are the two aspects that probably haven't had the uh, the same sort of um, weighty matters thrown at them as as we've had with with the Azim Rafiq issue that, that obviously uh, is also coming to a resolution tomorrow as well with uh, with uh, Yorkshire receiving their sanctions. So it it it, it really is an absolute smorgasbord of of bad news for England on the eve of a Lord's Test, which is um, I guess that, that that's just you know you reap what you sow or or, or rather fail to sow because of what England had, what the the report in in essence I'm actually quite impressed with the report. Um, for two basic reasons. Firstly, it is comprehensive. It is 317 pages long and doesn't waste a word. There, you know, I, I skim read it this morning. I will be going back into in and out of it as I try to frame everything else because there's 44 recommendations and within those there are sub-recommendations and there's an awful lot of extraneous points that that are drawn into the narrative that you may not automatically thought that oh yeah that that actually does relate to that because of this. You know, essentially, the the issue of lords gets a real kicking for for being um, you know too elitist and and not not accepting well, public schools that obviously rule the roost as we know through Eton Harrow and women never get to play there as we know uh, from the fight to get uh, women membership over the years. Uh, but it's the language in which it is written is the thing that actually impresses me the most because the, I think we touched on it in a previous pod that the the danger with all things. Equity and 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 fairness related in 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 the in the social in the in the culture wars that we're living in, is it can all come across as a bit woke and a bit bit ignorable. If you don't want to hear it, you're not going to want to read it. And this document is written in a way that you cannot not be drawn in and want to know why you're being criticised. 
and I, you know, I use the word castigate in the, in the, you know, the expectation was that English cricket would be castigated. I don't think it has been, to be honest. I think it's been very fairly written. I think it is damning, but that's not the same as pointing the finger and saying, you have done this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, all this time. I think it's very gently built up. There's a huge preamble that basically goes into the imperial legacy of cricket. I mean, I, I've written about this myself. I, I, I'm, I happen to believe that is the fundamental flaw that runs through uh, world cricket, but English cricket as the creator of world cricket, the very fact that to this day, England still play as their most important version of the game against India, against West Indies, against South Africa, against New Zealand, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. They're basically cosplaying against their former colonies on a day-to-day basis. And therefore, if that is the that's the most important frame of reference in which you look at cricket and you know to to a large extent we've all you know there's it's it's several decades now since the tebet test came in but the tebet test was was basically norman tebet the the former attack dog of the of the tory party back in the day he basically said if you don't support your if you support your country of your birth over the team that you the england the team of the country that you now live in you are not properly integrated into society and there's a huge number of people who will still support Pakistan, or as I was the other day, I was down at Bangladesh versus Ireland, and all of these, all of the Bangladeshis of East London, they all piled into Chelmsford to support Bangladesh. Now, most of these kids would have been growing up in East London their entire lives, probably for generations, but they still rallied around the culture of their forefathers. And so if that is the way in which cricket is set up in this country, that you will, if, if push comes to shove, you will be boxed as, if you're white, you're going to support England. If you're, if you're, if you're black, you'll be West Indies. If, it, if, it's, if it's boxed like that, it doesn't take a lot, it doesn't take a massive leap of, of um, misguidance to, for that to become sort of completely compartmentalised and you don't get any crossover between the two, if you see what I mean. And that, I suppose, is what this report is set out to prick. It it, it it comes at the woke brigade really early on, actually. There's a there's quite a, a strong line at the top of the report that basically says there are going to be some people who read this who do not want to hear this or do not want to believe that, that this is an issue. And it says very directly, we say to you, you need to change your ways because this is not going away. If you say that 99.9% of, of cricket fans don't give a damn about this, well, that's a lie because you're claiming that 0.01% do. And clearly, self-evidently, significantly more than that who give a damn about equity in cricket. And so it's, not, it's no longer sufficient to, to just roll our eyes and say, oh, it's another report landed, oh, let's do, do pay lip service to this and move on. And again, it, you know, it, it references bowl-out cricket, uh, uh, bowl-out bowl racism in cricket, or whatever. I can't even remember what the, what, the, what the exact frame of it was, but it was 1999, England's last great attempt to, to deal with the issues of racism in cricket, which came off the back of, uh, of a, a disgusting article written in Wisdom Cricket Monthly in, in 1995. Um, but that basically was lip service. You know, we, we have not bowled out racism in cricket. It's just 24 years later, and there are no black players left in the English system, or, or next to none, and so you know, it, uh, we were talking to talking to uh, Richard Gould, the, the CEO, uh, this afternoon, and he acknowledged, you know, this is an existential issue for for cricket. It, it, it's not, it's not enough to just say this is part of the culture wars. This is this this is just your your opinion of what cricket's like. No, it's more than that. It, this this is the reality of what cricket is like, and the reality is is not fit for purpose if cricket is to become a sport that is played by more than just um, white middle-class kids who get to go to public school, um, which, you know, there are a few of us in this room. <laughs> Uh, well, pointing no fingers here, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it is uh, pretty wide ranging on on the sort of the state of the game. Um, everything from yes, Eaton Harrow to what England uh, women's uh, cricketers are paid, um, accessibility of the game in in state schools and so on. Um, I mean, Matt, you, you kind of mentioned it at the top of the the show, but um, this is coming at a kind of a point of maximum attention on on the the summer game we you know we are uh, right right in the middle of the season uh, it's an ashes test at lords um and the blazers are squarely in in the firing line and it's going to be presumably a, a topic which kind of runs as an undercurrent now certainly through this 
through this test, through the build up to this test, and and, and the rest of the the rest of the series, the rest of the the summer. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, clearly, this is the culmination of a, as Miller alluded to, a, a very detailed piece of work, three hundred seventeen page report. Um, I think the commission was founded in back in November twenty twenty. I think so, over two and a half years ago, which shows you the sort of extent um, of the work that's gone into it and some uh, very impressive sort of resumes of the people uh, that have been part of that commission. Um, and uh, as you say, I think the timing uh, from from the point of view of the sport in this country is um, could, could hardly be worse. That straight before a Lord's test, uh, as we've mentioned, huge viewing figures, listening figures for the first test, um, people sort of really engaging with the game and, the purpose of the report, as it said, is to, to hold a mirror up to that game. And um, it, the reflection doesn't look particularly great. Um, I think particularly you're, you're 100% right that it's going to be a, a, the, the main talking point in the newspapers on, on Tuesday, the day before the test. I'm sure Ben Stokes will be asked extensively about it in his captain's press conference. Um, I, and as you allude to as well, it's it's clearly a major point that, um, you know, Marlborough Cricket Club, the private members club that owns this ground is in the firing line and they're sort of, I suppose, hidden away to some extent, much as there have been some some modernisers on uh, in senior leadership positions over the past few years. For so much of its existence, MCC sort of seems to have got away with um, being the sort of mysterious, prestigious institution um, because of the fact that it decided it was one at some point. Um, and has also sort of got away with the whole idea that it's because it's a, a private members club, it, you know, there shouldn't be anyone having any kind of outside in, inference in or interference in, in its affairs. And the, um, the report by the commission sort of uh, punctures a pretty big hole in that argument, really, effectively saying, you know, this is a, a club that benefits from significant sums of money every year from the general public through selling tickets for the matches that... Um, it, it gets that are probably far and beyond what it should. I, I was looking through earlier. Um, the, the commission make a big point, um, probably justifiably so, about the, the um, dearth of women's test matches that England have played at Lords, the complete lack thereof. Um, and I think more to the point, given the fact that there have been so many fewer women's test matches, I feel as though just the sort of scarcity of international cricket full stop that England have, England women have played at Lords is probably the bigger issue. I think only once since the 2017 World Cup final, which was promised to be a watershed moment. And then you look back through, since the start of the 21st century, England men have played at least two test matches every year apart from 2020 at Lords, with the exception of, uh, yeah, sorry, with the exception of 2020 because uh, of, the, of the pandemic. Uh, and they've played um, at least one uh, white ball international on top of that. So they've played a huge amount of games here and therefore funded the club handsomely. So the idea that this is some kind of, you know, hidden institution that um, can sort of scrutinise itself and its members can actually do what we want, thank you very much, uh, please and thank you, it just doesn't really doesn't really work. So, um, yeah, MCC has taken a real kicking. It, it, there's a clear recommendation that Eton Harrow and Oxford Cambridge should both be, um, you know, moved to other grounds after this year, which feels long overdue and, and replaced by... Uh, state school male and female competitions at under 15 level and a national universities final um, and, and various other recommendations through the report which um, you know the ECB has made a point of saying that it's going to take a bit bit of time to respond to this and was criticized actually for the sort of for the haste of the um, response originally after the the DCM, the initial DCMS hearing where as even Rafiq spoke um, sort of 18 months ago. Uh, so it's going to take a bit of time to respond to this. And, and uh, there is a sort of, uh, I suppose it sort of gets to the heart of one of the points of the report, which is that the ECB has this strange role as both promoter and regulator in English cricket. And obviously the report itself is something that the ECB has commissioned, which sort of, I suppose, further underlines that point. Um, but it does also feel as though this is such an extensive body of work um, that it's going to be very difficult for the ECB to do anything other than recommend the vast majority of um, the recommendations and implement those. So, um, yeah, I think it, it, you're completely right. It's going to probably dominate the next couple of days of, of media coverage. I'm sure the cricket will take over at some point, but um, this isn't an issue that's, that's going to go any, uh, away anytime soon because, um, yeah, as we say, it's, it, the, the purpose of this report was to hold a mirror up to the game and, um, yeah, it, it sort of 
the yeah, as I say, the reflection is um, staring staring back at everyone now. Yeah, um, important to hold a light up, uh, and I and you know show everyone exactly uh, what needs uh, dealing with. I suppose, Miller, what are what are the key recommendations? I think uh, uh, public apology is is number one on the list, and and then how uh, well placed do you think the ECB is to meet them? Well, I mean, this is this is the this is the hundred hundred million zillion dollar question, isn't it? There's there's an awful lot that I mean, there basically is, there's three different types of of issue for ECB among these four recommendations, forty four recommendations. There's ones they can do immediately, like apologise, which they've done that, tick that off. The first thing they were asked to do, and they've done it, and it's seemed perfectly wholehearted and and un, un, unfettered, and you know, saying a complete apology for. The failure to act previously, fundamentally, you know, the, and, and the lip service that's been paid down the years. So those things can be done. Then there's a then there's a harder part of uh, things that 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 can be done, but um, there's a there's a time frame that 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 will will be implemented. And probably the key key one among those is is the pay for women. I mean, it's um, it, the recommendation I think is for equal pay at domestic level by 2029 and international at 30. Um, which you know, when you think about the 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 growth of the growth of the women's game on the one hand is great. Uh, you know, I think you would imagine that English women's cricket, given the the, the trajectory so far, will be well placed to to meet that sort of balance of payments. But equally, it's you know it's asking an awful lot of TV deals and and expecting money to come in because you know it's got, the Sky deal is locked until twenty twenty eight. So there's a finite amount of money that the ECB have got in their coffers to to uh, repurpose and you know, obviously putting more money into one area will mean taking money out of other areas so what what where do they where do they cut their cloth to meet meet their expectations so the, you know these are these are the complicated um scenarios but then there's the third factor and this again is why i i find it absolutely fascinating that Ethan harrow is is placed squarely in these 44 recommendations there are certain things that english cricket can do certain things the ecb can do but this this is this is something that is entirely on mcc and entirely cuts across, as I mentioned previously, the culture war. If the culture war does have a front line in cricket, I would say the front line is the status of Eton Harrow and Oxford Cambridge matches at Lords. We've already seen a massive climb down from MCC when they, you know, some people say it's not a massive climb down. I say it's a massive climb down. They, they looked embarrassing when they claimed they were going to, going to abolish them and then then turned around and said, oh, we're not going to abolish them. Um, for that to be put on the same billing as everything else that we have seen and heard about English cricket and the, the you know, the, the Azim Rafiq's treatment and all the other things that are, have been properly headline news. And there's suddenly a slightly anomalous schools match is, is, is described as probably one of the most important 44 things that English cricket is doing wrong. I mean, that's kind of a, a damning attack at the status quo, a damning attack at the establishment, a damning attack at, you know, all the, the names of Endless names on the on, on the uh, on the committee honours board showing all Lord Percy Percy Blenkinson Smythe, who's you know, fifth 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 Marquess, fifth Marquess of this and Field Marshal that and and Duke of Edinburgh, you know all these all these famous presidents of MCC down the years. It's a direct attack at the lineage and 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 the, you know all Lord Alexander of Tunis, who was who was the who played in played in one of the most famous Eton Harrow games, and then then went and won the Battle of Alamein. You know these these are these are very square direct attacks on the English establishment, for want of a better word. And so, it's I find it particularly fascinating that that is placed on the same card and drawn into the same argument. And it's particularly fascinating because it's something that that the ECB directly for all the. The, the willingness of Richard Gould, who I think is a very good chief executive, and, and Richard Thompson and the, the, the board of the ECB who do seem to be doing the right things, there are certain things, and this this issue in particular just goes to show that there are certain things that will be out of their hands and they will not be able to affect um, the how cricket progresses from this point. And so, you know, we're, we're not there yet. We've got an awful lot of um, battles to fight to uh, to get any of this across the line. And also, just on the same point, there's there's a you know part of the the report that addresses the memberships of first class counties and the sort of disproportionate influence that they have on the structure of the game and and the power that they have at their respective clubs. And um, it, it's probably not been a particularly um, beneficial. Um, the status quo hasn't been particularly beneficial for anyone apart from a, a small um, group of overwhelmingly. 
um, sort of old middle class white men, um, which is, you know, for all the attempts at various clubs, particularly, I suppose, Surrey would be the, the best example of them to, to sort of widen their membership demographics over the past however many years. That is the reality at most most county clubs, and yeah, interesting that their their sort of memberships take a bit of a beating as well from the report. But um, this, I suppose, the whole as Miller says, the whole point is to look at every single um, structure within English cricket and not just the uh, things that are in the ECB's direct control. Because I, I think a lot of the time, a lot of counties and boards and whoever else MCC have sort of deferred to ECB on issues like this and said, oh, it's the ECB's job to deal with it. And the ECB have commissioned this report, which has said, actually, no, it's very much your guys' job as well to deal with this. And, you know, you need to stop stop washing your hands of any responsibility and start accepting that you need to be doing a lot better because um, this this game isn't going to be growing um, anytime soon if you keep if you keep sort of gatekeeping in the way that you have them. You know, Ollie Pope was put out for media today, and probably as a, a Cranley uh, schoolboy, probably not the the sort of perfect example of someone who's fought against adversity or anything. But he said, you know, as a test team, they want to be in a position in twenty years' time where you're picking from an entire country of um, potential cricketers rather than a, a relatively small um, demographic at the moment. So it's not like people within the game don't realise it. But, um, yeah, we need a sort of watershed moment like this, I suppose, to, to drive some meaningful change. I mean, I, I, I suppose full dis- full disclosure, just for the sake of, 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 of the sake of full disclosure, but it, it's not, it, I don't exactly hide the fact that I did actually go to Eton myself. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't bang on about it because I don't happen to think being an Old Etonian is actually proof of having a personality. But, uh, but you know, it, I, I, I am conscious... And I have been conscious for a long time that I was lucky to have gone to Eton insofar as I would never have got round to enjoying cricket to the extent that I do had I not gone to public school. I, you know, my family weren't particularly bothered by cricket, you know, but I was lucky as well that I grew up in a generation was free to air. So I got interested in cricket by turning on turning on the telly in the morning and, and watching it and realising there is this is this thing on the telly that is fascinating and I want to learn more. But then I was lucky enough to be in private education and therefore in a position where I could go and play cricket endlessly at school. And I'm conscious, very conscious, that that's a, that is a, a privileged position for me to have grown up in. And I'm also incredibly conscious that it is it has become even harder in the years since free-to-air telly disappeared and in the years since playing fields got, got turned into supermarkets and all the rest of it, that that these opportunities are thinner and thinner and thinner on the ground. And so there's a huge trudge of this report is based on, on, on the need for reinflating state school cricket and the need to, if not nip the dominance of the private sector in the bud, then at least just recognise the, the, the good fortune that comes with, you know, cricket is an expensive sport, the good fortune that comes with facilities and equipment and all the other things that just give you a, give you a leg up. And it's... Um, you know, 2005 Ashes, I remember um, discussing back in the day, but, you know, Andrew Flintoff, who's obviously done his, 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 his TV programme uh, recently, was, you know, one of the last state school boys. And that team, in fact, was, was very much one of the last great England teams that, that had a real backbone of players who, you know, the Harmisons and Hoggards and co, who, who were state school educated and came, you know, came into the, into the game in a, in a situation having, you know, like, like I did, watched, watched on free-to-air telly, learnt to love the game and then got the opportunity to play it and play it well enough to play for England. Those avenues are so much harder to come by now. And, you know, there's, there's, there's talk of uh, Ebony Brainford Brent's ACE programme and, and all the other initiatives that are being, that are being ramped up and, 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 and pushed forward to, to try to fill the void. But it's not the same as as the proper grassroots access that the game, for one reason or another, and there's no there's no one reason for this, but there there are several com- competing and and conflating reasons why the game has reached this point, and um, it needs somehow to unpick those one by one and get back to equity, which essentially is the it, there's there's a good you know we've all seen the cartoon um, in other other um, circumstances but it is within the report the cartoon of you know people trying to peer over a fence there's one tall bloke standing on boxes who's way over one short bloke who's in a hole and he can't see at all 
the idea of equity is to provide different levels for different people so they can all peer over the fence and have the same end result of being able to see what they're looking at and, and see the opportunity that lies out in front of them. That essentially is, is the point of equity. It's not to not to drill down specifically on Eaton Harrow or to or to or to complain that you know Ollie Pope went to Cranley and therefore his views don't count. It's to say that, you know, ideally there should be other people who's who have different worldviews and different backgrounds who are equally well placed to to make comments and achieve what these players are doing. Well, a lot, a lot to uh, unpack there. Legacy of Empire, uh, uh, we've got a lot to be thankful for. I think, Miller, the main um, disappointment, um, at least as yet, you haven't become uh, another old Etonian Prime Minister. So, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I shot my bolt with that speech, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what the the future will bring we will certainly um have more discussion and focus uh, on the contents of uh the report on the site from tuesday um and i suspect this is a conversation we'll keep having uh whatever our backgrounds and and uh qualifications as uh, as class warriors or state school standard bearers or otherwise um we'll leave it there for today i think um that is that is a wrap. We'll soon see about Basball's bounce-back ability, with England needing a win to prevent interest in the series dwindling quicker than a crypto investment. The Women's Ashes also moves on to the T20 leg starting on Saturday with Heather Knight's team behind the eight ball. We'll be back for more soon regardless. Until then, my thanks to Miller and Matt, and to you all for tuning in to the Switch It podcast on ESPNCrickInfo.com.